getting a little sense of who is here who has some background or involvement in their work responsibilities in historic preservation. Okay, awesome. good. And others of you are in, I assume, museum fields, historical societies, a variety of things related to public history and the uh, mission of the AASLH. Uh, but I thought it would be useful to kind of get a baseline of sort of preservation 101 uh, just for a few minutes. So going back to the earliest days of historic preservation in the United States, it wasn't always a public activity. Um, when historic preservation, and it, nobody certainly used that term, restoration, um, protection, saving, things like that, uh, the earliest days really were private activities um, organized by well-heeled individuals, uh, sometimes with the involvement of local government, uh, sometimes not. So the very earliest ones, we all hear, those of us who work in historic preservation, all hear about the little old ladies in tennis shoes and the Mount Vernon Ladies Association as being kind of the beginning of historic preservation in the United States, 1853, uh, Pamela Cunningham. But there were a couple projects even before that to preserve the Turo Synagogue, which is a wonderful building in Newport, Rhode Island, um, as well as the old state house in Philadelphia. So those go back to the 1820s. But it wasn't until the massive Colonial Williamsburg project got going in the 1920s when the rector of the Episcopal Church in Williamsburg convinced John D. Rockefeller to invest in preserving the remains of Williamsburg. And you see the wreck of Mount Vernon up above. And then you see Rockefeller with Rector Goodwin down below in Colonial Williamsburg in 1926, and then Henry Ford, another well-known name, uh, having developed his Greenfield Village, which is now the Henry Ford. At the local level, though, so these were private activities largely funded by philanthropists. At the local level, there was some early effort to protect things through local preservation ordinances. Charleston, the first, Charleston, South Carolina in 1929. New Orleans, not too long thereafter in 1937. And then, of course, the founding of the American Association for State and Local History in 1940. And you all are celebrating your 75th anniversary this year. Next slide. Okay, so that's the private side with maybe some local and occasionally a little bit of state involvement. What about the feds? Well, the federal government early on had a lot of public lands, especially in the West, to worry about. And so um, with the creation of, or the exploration of places like Mesa Verde National Park and other incredible um, Anasazi and other archaeological sites in the West, 
there was great emphasis to uh, establish an Antiquities Act. And so the earliest federal piece of legislation that directly had anything to do with historic preservation was the Antiquities Act in 1906, which has been amended and updated a couple of times since. Uh, but it still remains largely um, what it was then, which was to ensure that antiquities were protected and that permits were given for any work that was going to affect them, particularly archaeological excavations and other kinds of exploratory things. We hear these days about another aspect of the Antiquities Act, which is the president's ability to establish national monuments. Uh, that's also under the Antiquities Act. The National Park Service, which will celebrate its centennial next year, um, along with the 50th anniversary, um, was established in 1916, and, um, and they have a piece of legislation, the Organic Act, that authorized them. The real uh, start of an expansion of federal interest and um, public-private support for preservation really comes with the Historic Sites Act of 1935. And that's the basis for what we have now in the National Historic Landmarks designation programs. And it was coming out of the Depression era, the WPA era, that uh, things like the Historic American Building Survey and the Historic American Engineering Record were created as part of the Department of the Interior as well. And then finally, uh, in the immediate post-war years, uh, there was a push to preserve uh, things in public-private partnership and get the private side more engaged in working with um, public entities and with the federal government. And the National Trust was formally chartered by the federal government in legislation in 1949. Their initial charge was to preserve what? Woodlawn. Big old houses, Woodlawn, exactly, in Virginia. Next slide. So in that post-war era, post-World War II, um, there was increasingly um, an understanding that things were a mess. Things were getting lost in the post-war boom, um, in the urban renewal programs of the 1950s and 1960s, the expansion of the highway programs with the federal government um, passing federal aid highway legislation and starting the construction of the interstate highway system. A very influential book came out in 1964 called God's Own Junkyard. And the signage down here on the bottom kind of reflects what people were seeing. Um, along with that was Lady Bird Johnson's, the first lady, uh, LBJ's wife, uh, and her push for beautifying America. So these things on the environmental side as well as on the cultural start, side started coming together. Next slide. So in 1965, under the auspices of the U.S. Conference of Mayors, there was a special Blue Ribbon Committee put together. Um, it had some support from the National Trust 
for Historic Preservation and the National Park Service. And there was a determined effort with that panel to study what was going on, what the state of preservation was in the United States. And there was a look at what European systems were in existence and how they were doing in Europe to protect landmarks and, and other historic um, assets. Next slide. So this panel produced a report, which is kind of the, uh, the preservation book of Genesis. I don't know how to, how to best describe it. Um, which had a number of recommendations, and you can see them here. They felt that um, society, American society in general, um, supported by the United States government, really needed to do a better job of recognizing architecture, design, aesthetics, and all of the historic and cultural values that go along with the built environment. But they also uh, felt that we needed to go beyond preserving individual buildings as the National Historic Landmark Program had been doing and as the National Trust had been doing and get into districts, communities, um, larger rural areas. Along with that, we needed to consider both the economics and incentives to support preservation. So a look at tax policies was recommended. And we really needed, as a collective society, to do more than um, preserve the historic highlights that were out there, the things that were being added to the national park system or um, national trust sites or certain other things like that. We really needed to look at all that is worth preserving from our past as a living part of the present. Next slide. So in 1966, uh, and there's, you know, there's been a lot and there will be a lot more about the years of the Great Society under Lyndon Baines Johnson. Um, not, all, not all good, not all bad. Um, a lot of great things happening at that time. Certainly all the civil rights activity at the same time. Um, he signed the National Historic Preservation Act in October of 1966. Um, and as you see, he said, the bills that I will now sign help enrich the spirit of America. Next. The National Historic Preservation Act, which will um, have its anniversary next year, has an amazing policy statement that I don't think you could get through the Congress that we have today. It established the National Register of Historic Places, which was really an expansion of the program that was set up to designate national historic landmarks and to look at not only national significance of historic resources, but also state and local significance of those places. It set up a program for state comprehensive plans and surveys and matching grants and aid for both the states and the National Trust for Historic Preservation. The National Trust no longer gets federal assistance, um, and that goes back a few years ago. It established my agency, the Advisory Council on Historic Preservation, 
to provide advice to the federal government, to the President and the Congress, and also to administer something called Section 106, which is the section of the law that basically says before you're going to bulldoze something, stop, look, and listen. Look at what the impacts are going to be and give the Advisory Council on Historic Preservation a reasonable opportunity to comment on that undertaking. Next slide. So in the preamble of the National Historic Preservation Act, we find these words, that the nation's spirit and direction are founded upon and reflected in its historic heritage. How often have you heard a public official say something like that? Um, that our historical and cultural foundations should be preserved as a living part of community life and development. That preservation is in the public interest. My God, compared to you know, all the other public interests we have. And that current historic preservation programs were inadequate and that a federal role in all of this is appropriate. Next slide. So here's the, here's the full policy statement at the beginning of the law. It shall be the policy of the federal government in cooperation with other nations and in partnership with the states, local governments, Indian tribes, and private organizations and individuals to use measures, including financial and technical assistance, to foster conditions under which our modern society and our prehistoric and historic resources can exist in productive harmony and fulfill the social, economic, and other requirements of present and future generations. Next slide. That's why I think this is a big deal. We have, in the National Historic Preservation Act, and as it has been modified several times over the years since, um, the structure and, and the oomph, I don't know how to put it best, the, um, the blessing, I guess it is, to do these kinds of things at the federal level. Now, some would say, oh, you know, feds, 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 fine, fine. They'll come and tell you how great, you know, their programs are and why, you know, you should follow them. Um, but they never listen to what states and localities uh, are doing and, you know, the models that, that the states and local governments really have um, at their fingertips and are actively doing. Well, it's got to be a two-way street. Um, there are a lot of tools through the National Historic Preservation Act, um, including the Historic Preservation Fund, which we reg regularly advocate for expanding, um, and Hope Springs Eternal, Hope Springs Eternal. Um, it established the State Historic Preservation Officer. It gave Jay a job. Yes, thank you, Jay. Um, <laughs> It, uh, it created the Certified Local Government Program, which gives local governments an opportunity to um, not only take on some of these responsibilities that the federal uh, establishment would have, lucky them, or the State Historic Preservation Office, but it also um, provides some pass-through funding uh, for CLGs. 
Um, and it clarified a lot of other responsibilities that are spread out among the other parts of the federal establishment. The Bureau of Land Management, which controls 263 million acres in this country. The U.S. Forest Service, which controls 193 million acres. The Department of Defense, which has another eh, 60 or so million acres, you know, and so on. They all have responsibilities under this. And it also, in, in late in the game, but at least in the 1990s, um, made it clear that tribal programs needed to have support and Indian tribes have interests that the federal government needed to deal with in terms of cultural heritage. Next slide. So just quickly um, summarizing some of the things that have come out of the program in the last 50 years, about 90,000 listings in the National Register of Historic Places, representing 1.4 million properties, roughly 2,500 National Historic Landmarks, 22 U.S. World Heritage Sites, 1,900 certified local governments, 2,000 main streets. They're not exactly in the law, but main streets mirror many of those certified local governments, along with 900 Preserve America communities. There's a lot of overlap there. There are 49 national heritage areas, and that seems to be a Uh, growing trend. There's more interest in expanding the National Heritage Area system. Um, this amount in grants and tax credit projects, and of course the states and tribal preservation officers. There are roughly 100 to 110,000 federal and state historic preservation reviews every year. My agency, the ACHP, which administers that part of the program, only gets involved in a small percentage of them. The State Historic Preservation Offices uh, do the bulk of that work. And then, of course, there are federal land and property management activities, as I mentioned, and local design review that happens through those certified local governments and others. Next. So in this uh, anniversary, And in this program, we really want to tell the story of how this has improved um, everybody's life and community and the country as a whole. Um, and I don't think we've done an adequate job of doing that uh, over the years. We take little stabs at it, um, particularly each year when a number of people go up to Congress and uh, lobby for additional funds and that sort of thing. This is an opportunity to do it on, on a much bigger scale and on a broader basis. We need to be able to study and learn from some of the experience we've had um, in these programs over the years um, and um, clarify where the gaps are, what needs are, that kind of thing. And as all of us do um, in all of our different organizations, we need to be reaching out to a much more diverse and younger audience. In particular, I'm looking for who I'm going to hand off my, that baton to. 
you know, I'm about done. Um, <laughs> close. Uh, and we need to prepare um, uh, leaders for the future and look at policies that can deal with some of the, some of the issues that we have on our plate, both today and moving forward into the future. So those are some of the goals. Last slide. Those are some of the goals of the, uh, the whole program to uh, recognize the 50th anniversary of the National Historic Preservation Act and why um, we think, I think, it's important. Um, we can both look back at the achievements of the last 50 years and, um, and take stock of what we've done and where we've come from. We also need to use the opportunity to look forward um, beyond 2016 at the challenges that still face us um, and at preservation's future in general. Uh, and Eden will talk about uh, these lovely logos and other things. So, so um, are there any particular burning questions? We'd like to save conversation and questions until the end in general, but is there any, anything in particular that I said that you want to ask about? Okay, thank you very much. Do you have a question? Okay. I thought I saw the hand. Just checking. Okay, hi. So I'm going to talk a little bit more, and thank you, Ron, for giving that excellent background, um, about Preservation 50 in particular, which is the name we've given to the initiative put together, the coalition of groups that's going to celebrate the anniversary and basically has already started, um, but certainly next year. So what exactly is the mission of Preservation 50? This is a mission statement that's in the prospectus, and I'll show you a little bit of that later. Um, we want to focus both on the past successes of the National Historic Preservation Act and historic preservation in general, and also look at the future, not only what challenges we face, but what is our potential. What could we be doing that's more effective, that's more persuasive, that diversifies the preservation community? Um, what can we do to prepare for the next 50 years in, is the looking forward part of it. So that is where the tagline comes from, Preservation 50, Our Legacy, Our Future, both looking backwards and looking forwards. So we, we want to celebrate the achievements and the accomplishments, um, how far we've come since the 1960s. I was asking Ron earlier about a story I had heard. I don't know how many of you know Washington, D.C. at all, where, where we are from and live. But there was supposed to be a highway put straight, basically straight through DuPont Circle, which, now, which would have been a, a crime. It's a beautiful, residential, fun place. There was a big snowball fight there last year that kind of made national news. So it's a really cool place um, that draws a lot of um, people of different ages, different backgrounds. And to have put a highway through that really would have been um, a shame. This would have been an inner beltway, um, uh, in, in theory, looping around parts of Washington, but, but within the city itself. So because of historic preservationists and the NHPA, that did not happen. So celebrating those kinds of achievements and what can we learn from that to look forward to the future? Um, what is the legacy and lesson of the act, enhancing the program, and as Ron said, engaging a broader audience? And I'll give you some stats in a minute on why that's so important. So what about our message, uh, which in my point of view is a little bit broader than the mission? Um, we've invited 300 plus organizations to join Preservation 50. So we are assembling 
by far the largest historic preservation coalition in history, and we are hoping that it would also be the most diverse and the most influential. Because when you go to Congress and you ask for stuff, they like to know how many people care what you talk about and what is the dollar behind your request. So does historic preservation provide value? How does it do that? How does it create jobs, support local communities, um, create places that families want to live and stay and support the local businesses? All these things are tied together. And so that's, that's from my boss. Get on the train. Um, in other words, we want everyone to be joining us so we can make the strongest push possible. Oh, sure. So Preservation 50 um, doesn't officially exist as a separate legal organization. It's not a 501c3. Um, the National Conference of State Historic Preservation Offices, Nick Shippo, uh, very kindly volunteered to serve as the fiscal sponsor for Preservation 50. So Preservation 50, in terms of who we are, is a coalition of, as I said, we've invited about 300 organizations. We're constantly building that list of people. Um, at the very end, I say who the management team is. That includes myself. Um, it also includes a steering committee, which includes the advisory council, Ron's organization, and about six or seven other groups. And they're the ones who make the weekly decisions, and we have calls with them every other week. Is that helpful? Okay, great. Um, so some of the things that we've already done, of course, are create the website, and if for anyone who's not been on, and I hope that if you haven't, you will get on the site and check it out, and we'll, we always welcome suggestions. Um, this is just one of the, the, one of the home pages that we have, and the pictures flash through, which is kind of fun. Um, we also want to provide some very basic background, so if there's press inquiries, or if there are new members of the preservation community who think this sounds kind of cool, but they don't know what it is or why, there's some very basic background facts about the act and what it does and when it was signed. We also have logos. We've designed six logos, which took a lot of back and forth and arguing, but here we are. Um, and with all six logos, for no matter what community you're in or what kind of event you're planning, there should be a logo that is perfect for, for you. So we've encouraged people. They're free to download. You don't need copyright permission or trademark permission, any of that. So we encourage people um, strongly to get on the website and download them and use them as much and just to whatever extent you can. We also see our uh, members of the Preservation 50 Coalition as a, it's a back and forth partnership. So if there is a local community, that, a local event that you're planning in your community that has to do with preservation, we'd love to know about it. We have an extensive calendar on the website. Um, we have a social media consultant who's helping us figure out how to use Twitter, Instagram, everything you can think of, Facebook, um, to publicize those events. So we want to help get publicity for your event as well as having you guys help us get, get attention for Preservation 50. So online as well as a prospectus, we found it very useful in particular when we're trying to raise money. But if you are just interested or need to explain to your boss why this Preservation 50 thing is cool, um, the, pre the prospectus online is very helpful. Um, these are the six logos. I have them a little more visible later on. And the prospectus gives a lot of details. What are the goals? What are the needs? You know, why do we need to do this? Um, what are we celebrating? And how are we going to celebrate it? And in terms of those five goals, just to walk through them a little bit, the first one um, is to build the coalition. There are 500,000 current preservation leaders, 
and there's approximately 15 million people who claim to be interested in preservation. So I think this is a good, let me back up. So the first thing we need to do there is diversify and grow those groups. It sounds like a lot of people, but we want to have people really dedicated to the cause of preservation. And when we talk about diversifying, the National Trust did a study two years ago, maybe? It was pretty recent. Do you know when that was? Um, in the past couple years um, that found of these 50,000 leaders, 93% are Caucasian and 94% are older, affluent, with a bachelor's degree from the suburbs. So it's, very, it's a very homogeneous group right now. There's almost no diversity at all. And even among these 15 million, 67% um, Caucasian and 40% with the bachelors, a little bit younger, more of a mix of suburban and urban, and um, more of a mix of various levels of income. But to get the next generation of leaders involved, you know, those are not great numbers right now. We really need to work on getting next generation leaders diversified to reflect who this country now is, and it we, as we were not in the 60s. I mean, things have changed a lot. So we need to really put our efforts behind that. And then looking back, learning from the past 50 years, our primary goal there in terms of programming is to have a next 50 years roundtable event where we would have leaders in preservation across the country all come together and have a list of topics and there would be a white paper or a goal list that would come out of the, those roundtables that we would share with the public. So we have some ideas for topics. That's something we're always willing to, to listen to if you guys have things that you've noticed in your own jobs. Um, possible topics are developing next generation leaders, um, working together with environmental groups. Um, I'm sure everyone here knows that the environmental groups get a lot more attention than historic preservation does. And it's hard to know whether that's intentional, sort of mutual, hey, we really don't see the same on this stuff, or whether there's some potential for collaboration there that's been missed for the past several decades. So that's a possible topic for a roundtable as well. Um, and also, how to use creative placemaking as a tool for revitalization. I mentioned a few minutes ago that when you go to Congress these days, they want to know the dollar. You know, how is this going to affect um, my district's jobs, job situation? How is it going to create value? Are families going to want to come live in my district now when they didn't before? So creative placemaking is a big piece of that. It's similar to urban revitalization, but we see it a little bit more broadly. How can historic preservation, maybe environmental issues, having art, museums, easily accessible schools and resources, how can all of that help build the economy of this country and how can historic preservation play its part in doing that? So next two goals, telling the story and advancing public policy. Um, for telling the story, this is where we really think that ASLH can be helpful. Um, historians are much better uh, storytellers. I mean, I'm a lawyer, <laughs> so you know I can tell a story, but it's usually boring. So we'd love to have ASLH members helping us. You know, how do you really make this interesting to people who don't know a lot about preservation? Um, we've used, as you saw, the website. We've been using social media, and we'll continue to do that. We have an idea to do Preservation 50 the movie, still in the thinking stages, but we'd like to do a very short version that historic theaters around the country could show before a feature so that people know what's going on and how cool it is that they're sitting in this theater that was protected by this act. That's kind of what we have in mind, and maybe a long version as well. Um, and also highlighting local accomplishments. Um, you know, everything's local, right? There's lots of quotes about how everything comes down to local. And for this effort in particular, that's important to keep in mind. 
Um, for advancing public policy, uh, Ron talked a little bit about the Historic Preservation Fund. Now, the HPF provides money to shippos and tippos, and so without adequate funding, development is slowed down because the reviews take too long. And when development is slowed down, the developers with all the money go to Congress and complain that historic preservation isn't worth it because they can't build their building. So we don't want that to be the story of the NHPA or of historic preservation. And a big part of that is making sure that SHPOs and TIPOs have adequate resources, bless you, and adequate uh, funding to get the reviews that they need to do done. It's, been a, it's a huge problem for TIPOs because even though their pie stays the same size, it has to be sliced smaller and smaller. There's a new TIPO, a couple of new TIPOs every year. Um, SHPOs at least, the, the, there's 59 and that doesn't really go up or down. Um, but making sure that those offices have enough money is the major policy push for Preservation 50. And then the last one is engaging future leaders. Um, making sure that we not only are talking about preservation, but leadership in preservation. Um, Greg Werkheiser, who is a member of the management team, is nationally recognized for his leadership training. And so this is kind of his thing in terms of Preservation 50. How do we teach people not only to get involved, but to learn how to get other people involved and lead the efforts for the next 50 years? So what is it that we need to do now? We've got the website up, we've got the logos, we've got the steering committee, we meet every other week, and that's all great. But how do we actually get some results from this effort? Um, we need to grow the coalition first. We're working on getting agencies, nonprofits, corporations. We're working on getting funding partners. There's an MOU, a Memorandum of Understanding, that we're asking partners to sign. There's no requirement for a donation or that they do anything, but it illustrates the, the support for the initiative. AASLH was actually one of the earliest signers of the MOU, which we really appreciate, and so they're already involved. Um, we have a couple committees that we're getting going. When we say honorary board, we mean people like the First Lady or Secretary Jewell of Interior, people who are realistically not going to spend a lot of time, you know, talking to Preservation 50 folks but the name recognition that we can put on letterhead really helps with fundraising. So that's one of the things that we're working on. Um, raising money. I mean, th this all is great and we have some amazing ideas, but without the funding to support it, it doesn't happen. So that's a big part of our efforts right now is raising money. Um, we're also working on planning programming because it feels like it's a long time away, 13 months, but these things take a lot of time to plan. So we've been working on con contests and events, getting the roundtables scheduled and possibly funded, and working on this movie, and then raising money and raising money. I could have put that 10 more times, but I thought you'd get bored. Um, but it is, a, it is a top priority at the moment. So what about uh, local community involvement? What are some of the things that you all can be doing with your groups, with your facilities, with your entities? Um, we really want to engage the AASLH audience and, frankly, any other audiences that you may have access to separately, um, working on local projects, events, and activities that show the value of historic preservation on every block. Um, so planning local events, using those networks, and spreading awareness. As I said, we see this as a two-way street, so not only do, do we want to access AASLH members to, to talk about Preservation 50, but also on the other side to say, hey, AASLH is a really valued member of this coalition and here's some of the things that they're doing so that there's a partnership and a collaboration back and forth. Um, try to use those logos, um, which I'll show you in a minute, um, and social media and 
if there's anything that comes up in particular, if you need an idea, if you have a thought about something, we're very accessible, and we're happy to talk about Preservation 50 with, with any of you at any time. So keep that in mind and consider us a resource. So the logos I always like to show off, because as I said, it took quite a lot of effort to finalize these. Um, so this is our sort of colonial, colonial Williams, Williamsburg logo, would you say? Inspired by? This is our Tax Act logo. <laughs> um, this, is, this is rehabilitation. And one of the comments from, um, I think, one of our historic architects was, why isn't the guy on the roof uh, fully protected with, um, with a webbing belt? Because <laughs> it looks know. ugly in a logo. Right? <laughs> <laughs> All right, so this, this, is the, the first, this is one of my favorites. Um, and then we have the, the bridge here as well. I'm sure someone here knows exactly what the name of the style is. Truss? It's a truss bridge. Is it, is it a truss bridge? It's a free right. truss. Okay. Right. Free truss. So hopefully that's closer than the guy on the top of the house without the webbing. Um, this is our Adobe logo. This is the archaeologist logo. Hang on a second. Yeah. I'm an archaeologist. We had... We had a big debate over yes. what she is excavating. Um, and at one point, it looked more like an amphora. So. Which is? It's okay. Okay. <laughs> All right, some people lie. Someone knows what it is. You can tell me later. Um, this is our lighthouse. This is also one of my favorite, favorites, just because it's very picturesque. And it's very simple. So I like the way that that comes across. Um, and this so far has been the most popular one, the sort of urban downtown preservation logo with the theater and the old car and and all of that. This one also, I think this was the last one we added because we got some comments that there was no downtown logo. That's got to be Louisville, doesn't yeah. it? <laughs> we say that everywhere. <laughs> so all of these are available um, for download on the website, and I would encourage you to, to use them freely. These are the members of the steering committee that I mentioned. These are really, this is the group that really makes the decisions. Um, we have a conference call with them every other week. We talk about where the money is, where the working groups are, where the planning is. Um, and we do have a group of, I think it's nine working groups, each working on a different area, like commemorative events, advocacy, um, diversification efforts, the round tables. So we've tried to spread out how the work goes so that it actually gets done. Because if you only have the management team, which is basically me and two or three other people, it doesn't get done. So the working groups are all volunteer. They've done an amazing job so far in figuring out, can we do this? How much will it cost? Who could sponsor it? Who do we call first? Who can produce the Preservation 50, the movie? I mean, these kinds of nitty-gritty details, which the working groups are handling. And like I said, they've, they've been invaluable. Um, this is the project management team. There's me and uh, my colleagues from my firm, uh, Marion and Greg Workheiser. Um, there's Ron there at the bottom as well, because ACHP, ACHP has been tremendously supportive. And as I mentioned, Nick Shippo is the fiscal sponsor for the effort, which basically just means because Preservation 50 is not an independent 501c3, checks and donations go through Nick Shippo first, and then they come to the team to uh, make sure things get done. And these were everywhere. Like I said, there's probably other social media things that, that were on as well, but these are the big ones, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Um, if you take a cool picture somewhere, you know, we'd love to continue that um, flow of information going for as long as we can. So that is the, that's basically the wrap-up. Do you have anything to add? The only thing I want to add, just to clarify, is that coming up in November, I think many of you know, the National Trust for Historic Preservation will have the National Preservation Conference in Washington, D.C. Um, we have been working closely with the Trust 
on many aspects of the conference, which is called Pass Forward. And, um, and there will be a number of kickoff things for the year uh, that is going to begin to elapse um, until October of 2016. Right. So that's kind of a kickoff event um, with a lot of involvement from uh, many organizations. Um, the only other thing I would add uh, before questions or comments is that uh, along with the AASLH, the National Council on Public History is also um, a signer of the Memorandum of Understanding, so they're, they're active as well. Yeah, the theme of the trust conference this year is basically Preservation 50, you know, or Preservation at 50, to be more specific. So um, we have a power, I don't know if you know, but uh, Marion and Greg and I are doing a power session at the trust conference, which will be recorded and, um, well, I think we'll be streaming several of the um, sessions on the Preservation 50 website. And there should be about around 2,000 plus people there because it's in D.C. And even in Savannah, which is further away and smaller, they still had 1,700 people come. So we're very excited about the opportunities that that presents. Yeah, and as I said, I, I, we can take questions now or, or later, whichever you, you guys want. I've got cards. If anybody wants to mull it over and stay in touch, I'd be happy to do that. Yes. I don't think I've heard of a connection with Lego, but um, you're, you're probably familiar with San Antonio um, and their, their, their race, I, I, I forget exactly what it's called, but basically it's the preservation race for, race for success or something like that. Um, and it's a, it's a citywide kind of combination race scavenger hunt, you know, like that sort of thing. So there might be some, some examples like that. I think it sounds just like like a lot of fun. <laughs> it sounds awesome. The National Building Museum had a Lego exhibit a couple years back. There's a couple of traveling exhibitions that deal with Lego architecture, and we're looking through those kind of programmatic components, and there's something there. And they have the new Lego people, right? Like there's an architect, and there's an archaeologist, maybe. I know that Barbie did some of them also. There's like a Barbie architect. <laughs> That's a great idea. 
Thank you. And, and I very much like to see, we, we haven't talked about it uh, among the steering committee and the management team, but I very much, much like to see those kinds of projects linked through the Preservation 50 website and, and, and among the, the various partners. Yeah, we so love that there's to, a sharing of, of materials yeah, and that kind of stuff. Yeah, we'd love to publicize that once you feel like you're, you've got a plan. We're close. Yeah. Great. Right. Yeah, we'd love to have some pictures out, you know, whatever. That would be a lot of fun. Thank you. Thoughts, comments? The other, the other thing we're looking at, oh, call on you in a moment. The other thing we're looking at is how we can connect with the History Relevance campaign um, and have talked with folks at both the National Council on Public History and here um, about that. So. Um, if there are ways to connect up the dots about the importance of history with the importance of historic preservation, we don't always we don't know exactly talk with each other. I mean, even though we're overlapping a lot. Yes. Uh, my question is just um, what you see the time frame of the campaign being um, at the state and local level. So does it launch in November also, or does it launch at some later point? Well, that's a good question. Um, I would say, as far as launching goes, you know, from our perspective, we've been launched for quite a while. Um, so we, we've been to a lot of these conferences. We've encouraged local communities to be involved. So I think it's already been launched. Um, we also, as, in terms of the November event, there's also a, an event in early January in DC through the Society for Historical Archaeology. Um, they're also calling theirs a launch. So we don't want to limit ourselves to one big event, um, but we've been reaching out through the MOU requests and, and other ways to try to get as many local organizations as possible involved. Um, and if your organization wants to sign the MOU, if you want me to send you a copy, we'd, we'd love to have as many partners as, as we can. I guess my answer to that question is um, if you need some lead time, you know, to get, get things up and running, for, look, for, look at the calendar year of 2016. Um, yeah. as, as the best way to do it, even though there will be things to some extent culminating um, in the fall of 2016. We're hoping to have an event at the LBJ Library in Texas um, in October at the time of the, approximately at the time of the signing of the, of the act. Um, but that doesn't mean that some other things couldn't continue forward. A lot of us are playing defense on this state and federal historic preservation tax credits. Yes. And I yeah. wondered uh, to what extent uh, is, is that a big part of the conversation here? Are there ways you're, you're saying you're advising people to talk about those tax credit programs? Um, just wondering if you could talk about Sure. That. No, that, yeah, that's great. Um, it's not at this point. The National Trust, as you, I assume you know, has an enormous, um, has invested an enormous amount of resources in the historic tax credit, at least on the federal level, um, and in supporting state tax credits as well in various places. So 
the plan at this point is to be very we're, we work very closely with the trust they're on the steering committee um, so it's part of what we're doing but I wouldn't call it necessarily a plank in the advocacy platform just because the trust is the expert in that area so to have someone else step in doesn't really make sense in terms of how we're using our resources but they they're amazing um, and I if you need a particular person there to call I have several people that you can call who are who know just everything there is to know about this the trust is currently working on introduction of a of a new um, tax credit bill um, which would be um, a successor to what had been proposed as the Community Reinvestment Act. Um, and they're trying to nail down the sponsorship at this point. Um, they had a sponsor who, who had to resign from Congress, Adam Schock. Uh, so so um, they had to go back to the drawing boards a little bit. But, but they are- I'm related to the trust. My, exactly. My understanding is that that is imminent um, within the next few weeks. Now, whether it's going to get lost in the noise of the end of the fiscal year, you know, then it, it will probably be after whatever happens, whatever dust-up happens over the, over the budget and everything. But um, soon, that is coming. The other thing uh, is that the new report just came out um, and is available through the National Park Service on the Tax Act program. So while, that, oh, that you can get, go to the National Park Service website to find that. And while we're talking about some details of advocacy, as I mentioned, the Historic Preservation Fund is really the main policy objective of Preservation 50. So there's two issues there. There's reauthorization. It expires at the end of this month, actually. Um, I suspect that it will not die, um, but it is coming up. Um, and then the other side of it is funding. Um, without getting into the minutia of congressional appropriations, which is so dull, um, the law says $150 million a year goes into the fund, but how much the shippos and tippos actually get has to be appropriated by the appropriations process. And the highest that HPF has ever gotten, I want to say, is 94, 98 million in a year, something like that, and it sort of has been dropping. So those are our two priorities under HPF, is getting reauthorization, either 10 years or permanent, whichever we can get, and getting full funding if possible. Because the money's sitting there, it just hasn't been appropriated. Um, if you want, and not quite up to the minute, but pretty regular update on any of those kinds of things on the Hill, go to preservationaction.org, and they will have the, the latest on the Historic Preservation Fund legislation as well as whatever's happening with some of the other things, including tax credits. Yeah, I'm not sure that anybody has the appetite for rewriting the, the law, but there, but, but it is certainly an issue we're going to be looking at and are looking at. Um, we had worked with, we had, well, let me back up. 
The National Park Service has been doing this for a while, as has the National Trust. Um, the Advisory Council um, took on uh, the idea of building a more inclusive preservation program to kind of then complement what the Park Service and Trust have been doing, especially on the expansion of the National Register and um, similar kinds of identification and evaluation of resources important to um, underserved groups in the past. And there is a grants program, as you're probably aware, that um, there has been some money appropriated each year, $500,000 the last couple of, couple of years. Um, that's requested again next year. So, um, so we have been working first with the Asian American and Pacific Islander community. We held two listening sessions in different parts of the country. We have some recommendations coming out of those discussions. Um, we are now embarking on uh, some outreach to the Latino and Hispanic community. We're having our first listening session with that group in Santa Fe, New Mexico in October. And, um, and we hope that to have another one next year and to tie it into the 50th anniversary discussions. So um, it's still formative, but um, it's moving in, in that direction. And something that we're doing, because of the numbers I quoted, which are, you know, as I said, very homogeneous, um, we are, instead of just inviting preservation groups to join the, the co coalition, we're inviting like chambers of commerce, like the Latino Chamber of Commerce, and um, really any underrepresented community that has a coalition or a group that we think, you know, for example, a Chamber of Commerce, if it's going to help support the community and create jobs and all of that, we're hopeful that the Chambers of Commerce would be supportive of this effort. So in order to try to reach those groups in and maybe some preservation groups who are new will come out of this, we're being a little more broad in who we're inviting so that we try to get a diverse representation. And we've had some success. We're working on it. In terms of listed prop properties that are already listed, but that don't tell the story completely. Okay.
We heard that um, in a couple of our sessions with the Asian American community. Um, we had some great examples from the Boston area, for instance, where there were uh, there were a lot of statements of significance and um, and aspects of the properties from both a historical and cultural point of view that were just not included in the old documentation. I know in the case of the Massachusetts Historical Commission, the State Historic Preservation Office, they're trying to go back and look at some of those. Um, but, you know, it's a painstaking process. And I think, you know, I think that, um, I don't want to speak for the State Historic Preservation Offices, but, um, you know, it seems like something that the SHPOs need to take on in some bite-sized pieces over some period of time, just as they're trying to deal with things like digitization uh, and, and other, other means of uh, record, uh, record keeping and record access. So, I, I mean, I think it's an important, an important point. I don't have an answer to it, and, and we probably will not be involved directly in that kind of thing unless there is a way to advocate for some additional funding um, to support through the Historic Preservation Fund, you know, the staff time to go back and do some of that work. But would that be like a National Park Service? Yeah. Yeah, I, and probably I, through the CLG program or yeah. or CLG and State Historic Preservation Office sort of combined. But I love that idea because we've talked a lot about the National Register yeah. itself not being representative, but maybe it's not 100% about the sites not being listed, but about the listed sites not being accurately and fully described. So to me, to have another alternative to diversify the National Register is kind of exciting. I would not heard that idea before, but I'll mention it to the diversification working group and see if they've thought about trying to raise money in particular for that effort. I would love to be part of your movement, so. Great. Great. Yeah, we, we were aware of that, of that issue and didn't have a bright answer to it. Well, that's it from, from us. Thank you so much for your interesting questions and for coming. I've got, as I said, I have a bunch of cards or you can reach us through the website and thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs>